Who are they? How did they get here and where are they now? I'm Tyson Chastain, Director of Alumni Relations with Johnson University, and this is the Sojourner Podcast. The Sojourner Podcast is brought to you by the Alumni Association at Johnson University. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. Today, we're joined in the Sojourner Podcast by 2007 Johnson University, Tennessee graduate, Joe Gordon. Joe, welcome to the Sojourner Podcast. Hi, Tyson. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you joining us today. To get started, would you mind giving a general introduction of yourself to those in our audience who may not know who Joe Gordon is? Uh, sure. So I actually live here at Johnson University, Tennessee. I'm professor of theology in the Department of Bible and Theology. Uh, I've taught at Johnson since uh, 2015, uh, and I actually started teaching at Johnson University, Florida. I, uh, I'm married to Carice. We just had our 13th anniversary. And uh, we have two children, uh, Stephen David, who's three and a half, and our daughter, Mariah Grace, uh, who will be one year old in April. Uh, you said you've been married for 13? 13. Yeah. And you 13. have a three and a half year old. You guys took some time before you decided to be parents. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't entirely by design. We tried for a long time and, and had uh, pretty significant fertility struggles. Oh, um, and we're, we're totally honest about this, but we actually had uh, four miscarriages before Stephen was born. Wow. Um, so we uh, were praying and desiring to have a family for a long time, and, and we actually uh, weren't even sure it was going to be possible. And then lo and behold, uh, Carice was, was pregnant again with Stephen, and uh, he joined us when we were in Florida. He was born in Orlando. And... Um, Man, he is just uh, so much fun, uh, super high energy, uh, a really interesting blend of both of us. Um, he has a lot of my idiosyncrasies, um, which is fun, and and he's just a blast. And then Mariah, we weren't, weren't really expecting uh, either, uh, but uh, she is just full of light and life and, and joy. She is the most pleasant person that I've ever met in my life. So um, our lives are, are very busy, uh, very full with, with the children. So Wow, that's cool. Really neat. Uh, you know, hopefully we'll get into that a little bit as we talk about more of your journey. I mean, how that developed in you and how that impacted your spiritual journey. However, before we get there, uh, let's go ahead and just get started with uh, your history. Where were you born, raised? What was that like for you? I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. I was born and raised in, in a suburb of St. Louis. Didn't actually grow up in a committed Christian home. Uh, both of my parents were born and raised Roman Catholic. I have an older sister, and both she and I were christened. We were baptized into the Roman Catholic Church as, as babies. Uh, but my parents weren't super committed in faith at all until uh, late in grade school, they had some things that they were working out in their marriage, and they sought counseling and didn't really have much success um, until some people in our neighborhood directed us to a local Christian church, to an adult education minister at that local Christian church. And then my parents decided that they wanted to have us in church. 
And so we all started going uh, whenever I was in about fifth grade. My sister was in sixth grade. Uh, my sister was baptized again in September or October of her seventh grade year. And then my mom and I were baptized again on the same day, uh, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's at the end of that year. And then my dad was baptized a couple months after that. So uh, we were there um, at this church, First Christian Church of Florissant. And I had a pretty dramatic conversion experience. It wasn't actually at my baptism. Uh, it was at a week of camp the, mm. the next summer. I had uh, a missionary named Jonathan Miller, who was a camp sponsor. And um, he told me something that, that just transformed my life. Um, he said, you came to camp here for a lot of different reasons. But the actual reason that you're here is because God loves you and because God wants you. And um, that, that just totally turned my world upside down. Um, I had some social difficulties when I was in, in grade school. I didn't have really long-term friends. I had some kind of interesting uh, interests that made other kids not <laughs> want to be around me as much, which we'll talk about some. Uh, I like snakes a lot. I'm sure that'll come up in our conversation. Uh, but anyway, a lot of people don't. And so I had difficulty making friends, but after this experience at camp, I gained confidence and I found friendships uh, at church, and I also found purpose in in terms of ministry and service and and worship and prayer. And so I was uh, involved in church things throughout middle school and high school. Basically, any time the church doors were were open, I was there doing something. Hmm. Um, so then it became clear to me that I was going to end up in, in ministry of some sort. And so I um, started looking around at college options. And I had some folks who had gone to Ozark Christian College uh, from my home church, uh, some folks who had gone to Johnson, some folks who were connected with Lincoln, and some folks connected with St. Louis Christian College. And I was pretty set on going to Ozark. But then I had a couple folks come and visit youth group. It was my spring of my senior year. Stacy Abernathy and Tim Wingfield uh, showed up and they presented Johnson. And um, I said, well, one thing about Johnson that's significant is it is regionally accredited and American Association of Bible Colleges accredited. And my parents didn't want me to go to a place that didn't have regional accreditation. That wasn't a big concern or care for me. But since Johnson did have that, I thought, well, my parents want this, so I should at least check it out. And so I came, and it was April of my senior year. I had already all but committed to going to Ozark. And the first time I stepped on this campus, I was just blown away uh, by the beauty of the, of the natural area. And I stayed with uh, uh, Scott Kenworthy, uh, was, my, uh, was my host while I was here. He was just uh, super was and is just a super super incredible uh, guy, just articulate, passionate about ministry, faithful, uh, just so kind. And uh, I, I just met a ton of other people like him in that short time I was here. Uh, but I didn't really even need all that because it was it was the first initial experiences that that convinced me this is where I needed to be. And so I switched my plans pretty dramatically. And, uh, and came here in the fall of 2003. That's really interesting, as soon as you set your foot here, that you knew this was it. 
I hear that so often. Yeah. Um, now you have in this love of what do they call it? Herbology. Herpetology. Herpetology. Yeah. There, there you go. So you have you having this kind of perspective, it makes sense that the mountains would appeal to you. Yeah. I love the animals, but uh, it's it's just a beautiful place, you it know. Is. So the French Fraud River meandering along, and and lots of beautiful hills, lots of greenery, and I I grew up going down to southern Missouri to the Ozarks, mm. uh, which are sort of mountains. They're glorified hills. Uh, it's beautiful down there. Uh, but whenever I came here, I was like, oh, okay, this is, th- these are more like mountains. So, and then getting to go to Smoky Mountains National Park all the time while I was a student. Um, I mean, that was just an invaluable part of my experience. So I actually am doing a naturalist training at the Tremont Institute uh, this weekend at Smoky Mountains National Park. So, and actually, um, I mean, it's kind of, kind of a fun story. Uh, also a little bit weird to, to talk about it. But it, but it really is part of my story, and, and it'll help make sense of, uh, of the snake connection. Um, I've been interested in snakes since long before I was consciously a Christian. Uh, my dad caught a garter snake in our front yard when I was about five years old, and I was just fascinated with it. Well, one of the reasons I was so excited to go to camp was camp was in a country location. Um, High Hill Christian Assembly is, is the camp that I went to in, um, in central Missouri, and I thought, man, this would be a good place to look for snakes. So lo and behold, I got there and my youth minister, he was terrified of snakes. So he threatened to lock me in the, in the dorm during free time unless I promised not to catch snakes. Right. You know, I'm a seventh grade kid uh, who has social issues already. And, um, and he made a big deal out of all this. But it was from that experience that, that Jonathan Miller met with me and, and he said, you know, you had your reasons for being here, but the real reason that you're here is because God wanted you to be here. And when he said that, that was, that was really when, when it clicked for me, mm-hmm. um, when, when God's love for me uh, was, was made real. And so that was the beginning of, of I would say, my, uh, my Christian journey. Although, you know, um, later in my life, I came back into Roman Catholic contexts, which we'll talk about. And so I wonder about the significance of my baptism into the Catholic Church as a baby. Some of my most significant influences in terms of my spiritual life, my love and understanding of Scripture, uh, my reflection on God. Uh, they're the Church Fathers and um, some mid- middle uh, theologians from the Middle Ages, and also some some contemporary Catholic thinkers. I, I wonder about how all those things are connected far back into my journey before I was really aware of what was going on. It's so neat that you mentioned that. I recall reading your Alva Ross Brown Society profile, and one of the things that you had mentioned there was how you embrace the true rationale behind the restoration movement of this, you know, unity of Christian believers. It's not about a denomination at all. It's about this, you know, working together with the common Christian community. So that, you know, that really makes a lot of sense when you consider the context that you were raised in. And of course, not all of us were raised with that kind of context. So it's great to have your perspective brought forward to this conversation. Thanks for saying that, Tyson. It's been a fun journey for sure. 
and it's been unique. You know, we're so I, I think in, in Christendom today, we're so quick to judge the opinions of others as they express them and those kinds of things without ever considering the wealth of knowledge and experience and understanding that lies behind why somebody would say what they say or believe what they believe or what have you. Yeah, something I say to my students all the time is uh, it's foolishness to pass judgment on something that you've not first understood. That doesn't mean that everything everyone else does that's different than us is right. right. Um, but 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 the first work is is the work of understanding. And also something you just said uh, points to how there has to be appreciation. It has to be an appreciative understanding. I, okay, so maybe this is drastically different than what I've thought or what I've been told or how I've practiced things. But wait, let's let's ask what what is going on here. What are these people doing? What are they thinking? Um, that's been a something that's guided my reflection and my 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 spiritual formation throughout my experience from even before the, the time that I came to Johnson, through my time at Johnson, and then through seminary and, and doctoral work, and now coming back to, to Johnson, now even in, in my teaching. Did First Christian have any sort of a program in place to support their students who went to a Christian college? Yeah, we there was a scholarship program uh, for which I'm grateful. It wasn't huge or anything, but it was significant, you know, for folks who are going into some kind of uh, vocation of Christian service, especially ministry, they had scholarship money set aside, and I benefited from that, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I think that's great when churches do that. And all the more now, I mean, you know, we're needing more and more ministers. It's great for churches to encourage students to go to a place like Johnson. Were there any other students that came from First Christian, same time you did, friends of yours that came to Johnson? Yeah, there was a good number of folks, actually. There had been before because there was a long-standing kind of tradition of, of, of a number of ministers coming from Johnson and going there. And, th and so there were folks who were older than me who had come through Johnson quite a few years before. But then whenever I started, I started with one other person from my home church, uh, Josh Wingfield. And then the next year, a number of other folks came. And then the next year, a number of other folks came. And then actually the year after I graduated, I think the next class, I think there were maybe like five or six who came at the same time. So and we were just talking about Chris Vandalin. Uh, Chris started in youth ministry after I left there, but uh, during his era, a number of other folks came through under him and in, in his ministry and, and came to Johnson through his influence, among influences of other other folks as well. Right. Like, and some of those folks included like Andy Webster mm. and uh, Eric Davis and um and matt mueller uh but i'm just listening tyson's laughing right now because i'm listing people who played floor hockey with <laughs> us right. um uh, just a bunch of uh, a bunch of really wonderful good guys and and women as well um came through in, in the years after i got here so when you came to johnson what did you come uh with the intention of studying well i wasn't totally sure I thought for sure I'm going to be in some kind of a ministry, but I don't know what that's going to look like. And so I just want to basically get the most out of the experience that I can. And I knew I was going to be preaching in some way, teaching in some way. And so I just settled on, on the preaching and church leadership track. Uh, that just made the most sense to me because I thought no matter what I end up doing, I'm going to be, you know, sharing with people. And so um, I want to get 
get what I can out of this. So I was on preaching and church leadership. Um, I, I came into college thinking I've seen a lot of people who are passionate in their faith, but they just don't seem to have a major interest in like really digging deep into the study of scripture. Um, and I had also seen people misuse scripture. This is not unusual. This is not uncommon. We see this among our own people. We see this elsewhere. And I was really disturbed by that. And so I came to Johnson in part thinking, well, I'm going to do, do something about that. You know, other people have gotten the Bible wrong. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm just not going to do that anymore. And so I was super excited to get here to have all of the uh, Bible and theology curriculum that we had. But I was really excited for the biblical languages too. So I ended up taking five semesters of Greek and four semesters of Hebrew. And I just loved all of that and learned so much. So I came in with this attitude of, you know, I'm going to fix things. And then I quickly realized how that's not really going to be the way things work. You know, that, that work that I did in my courses just answered so many questions for me but it really opened up so many more than I had initially. So like I can remember the first couple of weeks I was here, I had hermeneutics with Jody Owens. I had Pentateuch with Steve Cook and I had gospel narratives with Carlos Gupton, with Dr. Gupton. Wow. And um, every single one of those classes, every single day I came into class, I left thinking like, man, I've memorized a bunch of, of scripture like I, I had, I, I went pretty hardcore in, in high school, um, but I don't know anything anymore. Like, um, you know, I, I hadn't realized the challenges that are involved in interpretation, how interpretation is always a subjective process uh, and it's hard work and it requires responsibility and responsibility requires us asking all kinds of questions about scripture to understand it that I didn't even know were Real questions in Pentateuch class, you start in Genesis 1, and, and I find that folks have the hardest time in Scripture understanding the beginning and the end. Uh, Genesis and, and Revelation are, 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 are key points of, of dispute and, uh, and frustration and argumentation. And I remember Steve just really gently saying, like, there are actually two creation narratives in Genesis 1 to 3. There's the seven-day in Genesis 1, and then the Eden uh, narrative in Genesis 2 and 3. And I was like, I, did, I didn't even know this. Um, and it just turned my world upside down. And then I realized there were four Gospels, not one in, in Dr. Gupton's class. He didn't harmonize them. He said, let's actually look at what Mark says and how he does what he does. And let's look at how what Matthew says and does is different and Luke, the same. And then John is like way, <laughs> way different. And let's actually study each of them and try to get to know them on their own terms. And it turned my world upside down, but it also stoked a fire in me for advancing in my understanding of, of these things. I knew that this was going to be home when I set foot on campus as a, as a visitor. But then my first couple of weeks of, of class when I was here, it was like, this is exactly where I need to be. By the end of my first semester, I was so engaged in everything, and I had a 4.0. And um, I was a good student in high school, but I didn't really expect it to, to be this significant, this much of a pull for me. And then by the end of my first year, I still had a 
And so I got an invitation to the honors program and did the honors program for the last three years and spent a lot of time learning from, from Dr. Mattingly and that. And it was an invitation for me to wonder about things hmm. and to ask questions, not in a kind of an antagonistic way, but like, what, what does all this mean? What things have I not paid attention to before, but that they're worthy of my attention, you know, as a Christian leader, um, as somebody who loves scripture, like it just opened up worlds to me. Mm. And um, I, I'm so grateful for that formation. So how was the academic experience different from being a regular undergraduate student to being on the honors program? Well, we got to register for classes first, which was, you know, that was just a nice bonus. Back in my day, the honors program actually had some special majors that weren't available to everybody. Um, like history was a major, religious studies was a major, literature was a major. And anybody should be able to do history. Anybody should be able to do uh, religious studies. Anybody should be able to do literature. And now we can. But back whenever I was a student, those were those were special opportunities. And then, of course, Dr. Mattingly just taught courses on almost everything he was interested in. And he's interested in everything. <laughs> So I got some really incredible experiences with him in the classroom, and then also some special opportunities in chapels, honors chapels. And then uh, honor students are required to go to different things in the community, like uh, or orchestral concerts, plays, musicals, um, and these are all paid for. And so you, you just get to choose which of these things you want to do. So it just, just provided a lot of opportunities. And actually, um, I mentioned two of the classes because they're really relevant for me personally. Dr. Manningly taught a course on the history of the Bible, and I didn't really even think about the Bible having a history, but Christians are not like Mormons. Mormons believe that the Book of Mormon was written on gold plates buried in upstate New York, and then an angel told Joseph Smith to go get him. Right. And uh, that's a really convenient way to get a holy book, but that's not how we get the Bible. So that was really an incredible class for me, just to learn about the history of manuscripts, the history of the technologies of, of scripture, right? There's a huge difference between scrolls and a, and a codex, which, mm -hmm. which we know is a book. Then the printing press makes a huge difference. Also learning about all the beautiful art in the Bible, illuminations or what, what that's called. That was just amazing, incredible, helping me to understand and appreciate scripture better. And then the other class was science in the Bible. In that class, Dr. Mattingly had us reading things all the way across the spectrum. And um, you couldn't really ever know exactly what he thought. He just said, here's all these things, and you need to read them carefully, and they're worth engaging. They're, you know, we, we talked about how we need to understand before we pass judgment on something. That's how he presented things. And that was really just a rich experience for me. And then I got to do a project in that class, and I chose to talk about the reptiles and amphibians that live on campus. And I actually got to catch a couple snakes on campus and bring them in and introduce my classmates and, and Dr. Mattingly to these animals. And um, such a cool experience, you know. I just learned so much from all of that and grew so much uh, through all of that. And really, that was characteristic of the entirety of my, my Johnson undergraduate experience. Uh, and I'm so grateful for that. Hmm. So what about your uh, social experience on campus? What are some of the things you did extracurricular-wise outside the classroom? 
Well, there were plenty of fun opportunities there as well. I mentioned going hiking. Uh, Joe Miller uh, and Adam Bean uh, and I would, would go to the mountains pretty regularly from early on in our experience. Uh, and then sports were really significant for me too. Uh, rec sports, intramurals. Um, I played intramural floor hockey uh, right off the bat and had a ton of fun with, with that. Captain three teams to the, uh, to the championship in my four years. Uh, so all but my junior year, uh, we were successful. I never played soccer before coming to Johnson, but I discovered how similar it was to hockey my freshman year in intramurals. And then I got to captain two intramural soccer teams to championships as, as well. And then uh, I played varsity soccer for my sophomore and junior years and, and had a really wonderful, but also challenging, growing experience. That was the first time that I had played on a team uh, since playing roller hockey in, in middle school and early high school. And that was just really, really rich being with, with that group of, of guys and getting out and exercising with them and working on each other, working as a team. So all those things were significant aspects of my, my formation. I have fond and not so fond memories of the river paths down along the French Broad River. My fond memories are just going out there to walk. Sometimes we would go when the river was low and we would go wade out across and, and just play in the water and stuff. And then I also remember during conditioning prior to soccer, uh, Brent Brewer just running us to death, running up and down these hills on these narrow paths. And, and it was all part of it and it was all good. It was just nice to be able to have all of those really stimulating opportunities to grow physically uh, alongside all of the rich uh, intellectual and spiritual work. It was a well-rounded experience for sure. So what about the spiritual work? What do you remember uh, about campus life that enriched your spiritual walk? Well, I remember a lot of impromptu worship and prayer experiences with fellow students. That was significant. Opportunities in chapel were significant. I really benefited from all those sorts of things that were going on. But also, I really early on sought out opportunities to serve off campus. And so for my first three years as a student, I volunteered in youth ministry at Woodlawn Christian Church. Um, and I also played bass guitar uh, on Sunday mornings there in, in the band. And um, I got to play bass at, at chapel on, on campus as well. And, and so I, I had a pretty well-rounded experience in terms of, of service and then opportunities for worship and, and prayer as well. I told you I was excited about preaching in particular. Uh, I snuck into homiletics one early. Through that, I got some opportunities to preach and then uh, I was able to do that in uh, at Woodlawn Christian Church. They had a special evening program for Johnson folks to come and and to practice preaching and receive constructive feedback. So I did that, and then I also was able to do some ministry amongst homeless folks and UT students uh, in Old City uh, with a ministry called Lost Sheep. I thought it was interesting. Two of the names that you mentioned: Joe Miller, Adam Bean. Joe Miller, currently faculty at Manhattan Christian College. Uh, yep. Adam, currently faculty at Emmanuel School of Religion, right? Yep, yep that's right. Emmanuel, yeah, there, it's now Emmanuel Christian Seminary. Uh, that's right, Emmanuel Christian at, Seminary. At Milligan Milligan. University. Uh -huh. Yeah, we were all in Hebrew together. We were actually, I think, the second year that Steve Cook, 
the second time that he taught through Hebrew, Joe and Adam and I were all in there together. And there were seven of us at first. By the end of the first semester, we were down to five. And then by the end of the second semester, it was just me and Joe and Adam. And um, there was nowhere to hide in that class. You did your work. Uh, we all did. Those guys both graduated with honors. Joe is finishing his PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary in Old Testament. Adam just defended his dissertation and will graduate with a PhD from Johns Hopkins in Old Testament. And then there's me who left biblical studies completely. And my PhD is in systematic theology. And so that's kind of a funny thing about our journeys. And of course, I keep in close touch with both of those guys. They're both in my wedding. I was Joe's best man and Adam's best man. We've stayed really close in touch, you know, even though the distance has separated us since we graduated in 2007. Right. Based on the journey that you've described thus far, it only makes sense that systematic theology was kind of a path for you because of, of the background of experience. So tell me about how you made your decisions going forward after you graduated from Johnson. How did you decide what your next step was? What was your vision for where you were going? Yeah. Well, uh, I will I'll reflect a little bit on how that vision emerged when I was a student at Johnson. Um, so uh, Steve Cook, whose name has come up a number of times, he started teaching here when I started as a student. And um, through my experience in his Pentateuch class, I reached out to him to see about working for him as a teaching assistant. And he had me do that. So my last three years, I was with Steve's teaching assistant. And he invited me to give some small presentations in this class. And I did that. And I really loved it. I loved the research that it required. And then I loved actually being able to share it with my classmates. Uh, it, was, it was a cool experience to do that. And then by the end of my time at Johnson, I got to teach two of the class sessions in Pentateuch and two of the class sessions in History of Israel. So I had the whole hour and 15 minutes four times. And that whole experience, the trajectory from my sophomore through my senior year, I became convinced that this was something that I was being called by God to do. And really, from, from the beginning, I thought, man, I would like to come back to Johnson and, and teach here. And lo and behold, that's, that's what's happened. So towards the end of my time at Johnson, I was looking at seminary. And I only really looked at a couple of places, just Emmanuel and Lincoln, and either one of them would, would have been a great choice. But I visited Lincoln my senior year over Thanksgiving break with somebody from my, from my home church who was doing a master's degree there. And I sat in on a class with a professor named John Castellini. It was a philosophy class on contemporary mindsets, uh, postmodernism and modernism and pre-modernism. And I thought, this is the next step for me in my journey of, of wondering and growing and, and understanding. Uh, I also got a really nice scholarship to, to do an MDiv there. And so I moved to Lincoln in the summer of 2007, straight out of my bachelor's, went straight into a, another four-year degree and had an equally incredible experience in Lincoln for a number of reasons. Uh, the first one is the very first week that I was in Lincoln, I started a job in the library and my first task was dusting books and I was dusting books and a girl came in who was also working behind me uh, and started working. And then we started talking and I told her uh, what my life plan was, which was to 
finish my master's degree, get a PhD, and then teach at Johnson or some place like it. And she thought in her mind, well, I'm not going to date that guy. <laughs> and um, and this this young woman uh, was Carice Windham, who is now Carice Gordon, my, my wife. And uh, I met her the first weekend that I was there. And uh, she was wrong about that. Um, and that's pretty much the only thing that I can remember her being wrong about in the entirety of our, <laughs> of our relationship. So I mentioned like, you know, I was thinking I was wanting uh, to do teaching that I was being called to that, but I realized like the kinds of questions that I have are not questions that really fit in biblical studies. And, and this is kind of a strange thing. Um, but I, I just had questions about God. Mm. Um, I had questions about God's work in the world. I had questions about the Trinity. I had questions about Christology. Um, I had questions about uh, hermeneutics, the interpretation of scripture, which is actually kind of a blend of philosophy and theology. And so all these questions were taking me away from biblical studies from either Old Testament or New Testament into theology. And so when I went to Lincoln, I got to study with, with John Castelline, who is their professor of, of theology. And that just opened up other new worlds for me. It opened up uh, at least a more intense uh, engagement with uh, other voices in Christian uh, history that I hadn't studied with the church fathers, for instance, or with, with medieval theologians, even with the, the reformers. Um, so I had a, a class on the church fathers with Bob Ray, who's church history professor there. Uh, I, I had a course on Christology with Bob Kirka, who's now gone on to be with the Lord. I had a bunch of classes with Dr. Castelline. Uh, including systematic theology, a class on 19th century theology, a class on 20th century theology, a class on contemporary Protestant churches, a class on Roman Catholic theology. I had all, I just had all this uh, rich, expansive coursework. And then there were two other professors that I met, uh, Christopher Ben Simpson and St Steve Cohn. And uh, they basically were fresh out of their doctoral work out of their PhDs. And they just were super encouraging for me to explore the things that I was interested in. And Steve Cohn, in particular, introduced me to a couple of Catholic theologians, uh, Henri de Lubac uh, and Bernard Lonergan. And I just found their work incredible. It wasn't just intellectually stimulating. It made me love the Lord. It made me love scripture, too. Like De, de Lubac wrote a, a few books detailing how pre-modern Christians read scripture. And then de Lubac wrote this book on interpretation of scripture in the Middle Ages. And I read these and I was just so moved. It wasn't like every single thing in there I agree with, like it, it's all just achievement after achievement, advance after advance. Uh, but so much about it made sense in terms of helping me to understand what scripture is hmm. and have good expectations for it, for how God wants to use it for what God's intentions are for it. And so I was hooked by the, these Catholic thinkers. Then when it came for time for me to do doctoral work, Catholic places made the most sense in terms of places to look. I have people ask me questions about this all the time. Why, why would you go study with Catholics? Well, if you want to do a PhD in theology, your options are limited. You could go to a mainline quote-unquote liberal Protestant school, like an Episcopal school or, or Lutheran school. 
I didn't have any experience with any of those places. And so it just didn't make any sense for me to look at them. You could go to an evangelical kind of school, uh, a place like Wheaton or Trinity Evangelical Divinity School or Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, but a lot of those places lean pretty heavily Calvinist. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not a Calvinist. And then there are Catholic options. And at a Catholic option, you don't have the same kinds of restrictions. And, and this was true, true for me. I applied to and got accepted at Marquette University, which is a Jesuit Roman Catholic institution. And uh, both of those people I mentioned, De Lubach and Lonergan, they're both Jesuits, and they, experts in their thought, worked and taught at, at Marquette. And I got in, and I got to Marquette, and they basically said to me, here is everything in Christian tradition. Everything that Christians have thought, uh, everything that they've they've reflected on and, and work, worked on, here, here's all of it. Have fun. And I did. I found that experience building on what I had received at Lincoln and, and at Johnson in such a beautiful, powerful way. And uh, it was rich for a number of other reasons. Carice had to get a job uh, to support my academic uh, habits, you know, so we could eat things and, you know, have shelter and stuff like that. And uh, the only place that she even got any calls back from was an ELCA Lutheran church. Um, but they, they interviewed her and then they interviewed her again. And then they said, we want you to come and, and be in charge of Christian education here. And so she was in charge of all Christian ed from everybody from cradle to grave. Um, she has an undergrad degree in, in, uh, intercultural studies from Lincoln and then a master's degree in new Testament from, from Lincoln. And they, they put her in charge of everything. And so she just got to share scripture with folks and, and share resources of spiritual formation. And we worshiped with the Lutherans for, for four years, because uh, of course that made sense. And it was just a, an incredible rich experience to be with those people who love Jesus and to learn from them and also to teach them. I got to teach Sunday school and mentor high school and middle school kids and play floor hockey with them inside. And, and it was just incredible. And also when I was at Marquette, while I was studying with Catholics, I got to do campus ministry there too. So I and a Jesuit priest and a Catholic sister, the three of us, we're in charge of the spiritual well-being of 240 freshmen uh, at, at Marquette, most of whom were Catholic. And so they, they recognized my vocation and my ministry and welcomed me to serve. And that was just an invaluable, incredible experience. Um, I got to learn a lot about um, really beautifully Christian, uh, scripture-saturated ways of, of praying in, in, in Jesuit spirituality and also in the, in the uh, liturgy, liturgical worship with the, with the Lutheran church and um, in the masses at Marquette's campus. And I was doing that at the same time as I was reading the church fathers in their own languages in Latin and Greek and reading De Lubach's work in French. And thankfully, Lonergan is Canadian, so he speaks English, even though it's funny. Uh, although a lot of his work, he actually taught in Latin at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, and it was all in Latin. He taught in Latin to rooms of hundreds of people. But I was doing all of this like really intense study 
while also playing with middle school kids and mentoring them and teaching them about Jesus, teaching them about scripture, uh, sharing with them, you know, just being invited to to minister to and, and to love love people in really different settings than I had experienced before. And um, it has en- enriched my own spiritual journey so much. And I think that it benefits my students and, and my teaching because I bring all of that into the classroom. Right. Wow. Beyond that, then, you finish your doctorate degree at Marquette. What was your journey between there and Johnson? How'd you end up being a, a faculty member on the Florida campus and then ultimately here in Tennessee? So I actually got uh, the job at Johnson, Florida before I was done. Mm. So it just happened that um, in 2014, Johnson decided that they needed somebody to teach theology specifically in the Department of Bible and Theology who had their terminal degree in that area. Since I had said my dream was to come back to Johnson, of course, I wanted to apply. So I think I had like four people from Johnson contact me via email when the job was announced like that week, you know, saying, hey, you should you should check this out. But I applied, of course, and it was a really rigorous process multiple interviews, including a really long written interview where they asked me all kinds of prying theological, you know, ethical questions and stuff. And uh, it all went really well. And then it became pretty clear that the position was going to be on the Florida campus. And so I was like, well, I'm not really sure. I want to teach. I love Johnson. And so I'm going to commit. I'm going to be all for this. So uh, so then I had an on-campus interview at Johnson, Florida, um, and it went went pretty well. And then uh, they hired me. So we packed everything up in Wisconsin in the middle of the summer and drove to Florida, central Florida. So the first year we were there, 2015 to 2016, I finished writing my dissertation. And um, we spent three and a half wonderful years at Johnson University, Florida, just made friends with the incredible faculty uh, and, and staff there. Uh, we just really love the people there, students too, incredible students down there like we have up here. And I really liked being able to go outside 365 days a year and go be in the wilderness. You know, the stuff about Florida that people don't like, the heat and the and the bugs and the creepy crawlies, like that was a major draw. But, you know, I could go out my backyard and and catch some cool snakes that you can't find anywhere else in the United States. Then it came time where uh, Johnson had funds to hire another theologian, and that coincided with another opportunity that I got, which was to uh, do a postdoctoral fellowship at Boston College. And it just so happens that the person who Johnson was wanting to hire for that other theology position is a Florida native who had just moved back to Central Florida, uh, Dr. David Mafood. And so that made it so with us going to Boston for a time, um, David was, uh, he was already adjuncting for us uh, at at Johnson, Florida and already connecting with the community. He was able to just slide into that theology position there. And I was able to go to Boston and then go from Boston to literally come home uh, to Tennessee. You know, I, I think it was really just so wonderful uh, to get to have that special time in Florida. Um, and we miss miss the folks down there terribly. But I really am just so, so grateful that I've gotten to come home to, to be back up here in Tennessee. Mm. 
Okay, so you, you've come to Tennessee then to be a faculty member, but not only are you a faculty member, in your journey, you've had a lot of other things kind of on your plate. So I know that you are a published author. Why don't you tell us about the book that you have out there, what that's all about, and then uh, what's in the works for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I like to write whenever I get the, get the chance to. Um, and my first book uh, was published in uh, March of 2019. That book is a revised version of my doctoral dissertation. Uh, the title of it is Divine Scripture in Human Understanding, A Systematic Theology of the Christian Bible. So whenever it came time for me to write my dissertation at Marquette, I wanted to write something about what faithful, responsible Christian interpretation should look like. How should we rightly handle or rightly divide the word of truth? Hmm. It occurred to me as I was reflecting on it with all the resources that I had worked through was that I need to try to get an adequate understanding of what the Bible is down before I talk about how it should be interpreted. Because I think people have, uh, well, I don't think, I know people have expectations for, for scripture whenever, whenever we read it, Christians do, but not everybody is actually asked, where do these expectations come from? How do they all fit together and, and what sense do they make? And I realized personally, I need to do this work myself. And so that's what the book does. It offers one account of the nature and purpose of the Bible that puts scripture within God's work in, in history. Um, so in Ephesians 1, uh, Paul writes, God has made known the mystery of his will, a plan for all times to reconcile all things in Christ, whether things in heaven or things on earth. So this is what God is doing. My question is, what is the Bible in the context of God's reconciling work? Hmm. Um, what, what kind of a thing is it that God brings it into being and then uses it in Christian communities to keep God's work moving forward? So that's what the book does. And um, it actually was just released as a paperback literally uh, a week and a half ago, uh, which is super cool. I, I was really hopeful that it could be. Uh, it's when it was first published, it was $65 retail, which is a little bit pricey, <laughs> um, but it, it's done really well. It's got a lot of really uh, positive attention. I've gotten to talk with a lot of people about it. And so University of Notre Dame Press, who published it, decided to issue it as a paperback. So now it's only $35 retail, and that can get it into a lot more people's hands. So it's just had a really uh, exciting reception. And people report to me regularly, first, that they've read it, and it's super challenging. Uh, but second, that it's really helped them to better understand and appreciate the gift that, that sacred scripture is. And, and of course, what I wrote in that shows up in my teaching. But that's the one book. Um, I'm writing another book that is an introduction to the life and thought of Bernard Lonergan, that Canadian Jesuit theologian. Um, I got to write a lot of it when I was at Boston. That was, that was really what that postdoctoral experience was about. Between having two small children and my regular teaching load and the pandemic, I haven't gotten to do as much writing on it as I want to. But uh, that's an ongoing project. I've got a, a number of articles that have been published. And I'm also starting to do uh, more formal research and teaching work with theology of creation. 
um, and animals in theological perspective? How is it that animals glorify God through their existence, and um, what is, what is their uh, what is God's good will towards them? Those sorts of questions are are coming into my thought and my research more and more, especially with snakes and interacting with with students uh, and, and and animals on campus. I just got a grant to to do a new course called Creaturely Theology that will blend study of the plants and animals of our campus, hands-on study of those things with reflection on a theology of creation mm-hmm. and uh, theological perspectives on animals and also creation care issues of, of stewardship and conservation and, and all those sorts of things. I'm writing a, a book in my head on theology and snakes all the time. So <laughs> It's so interesting. Uh, I'm just imagining the title of, you know, a uh, crushing the head and snapping at the heel kind of thing. No, no, no. Yeah, right. Well, uh, it's funny you should mention that because that gets the most press. But like in Matthew 10, Jesus says, be as wise as serpents, which implies that serpents are wise. And also second, that we need to learn from them. And before the the curse of Genesis 3, God creates every creeping thing, Genesis Mm -hmm. 1, 24, and, and declares them good. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite images is the famous text in Isaiah 11, where Isaiah has a vision of the completion of God's reconciling work. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. And then at the end of that image, uh, the child will play outside of the hole of the cobra and put her hand in the den of the adder. And cobras and otters represent the two like actually life-threateningly dangerous snakes in the Middle East. And if they're in heaven, I'm pretty sure that uh, all snakes go to heaven, which was a joke title that I thought about for the book for a long time. I think I'll just have a chapter um, on snakes and eschatology with that (laughs) title. But like uh, John 3.14, in the immediate context and the most famous text in the New Testament, John 3.16, Jesus compares himself to the serpent Moses lifted up in the wilderness. That's the context of John 3.16, is this positive snake imagery. And in Proverbs 30, uh, Agar says that the way of a snake on a rock is too wonderful for him. So there's all these texts in scripture that are so snake positive. But when I talk about snakes, <laughs> Christians are the, are the people who push back the strongest, and they don't know any of these biblical texts. They only know Genesis 3. They only know uh, the ancient serpent, the devil, be thrown into, into the fire. But there's all these this other rich witness of scripture about the goodness, the wonder of snakes, the wisdom of, of serpents, which actually will probably be the title of that book mm. if it ever gets out. But something that I'm working with is Christians are alienated from God's creation. Mm. We don't live rightly in it. And this is a, this is a disturbing thing because God calls us to steward it. Being made in God's image is a call to to love all that God loves in God's creation and to, you know, basically to help it to flourish. And we have there's enmity between us and creation. And I'm actually experimenting with how encounters with snakes and thinking about snakes can help us to end our enmity with creation. Hmm. Because if you can come to see this thing in which God will remember in in the completion of God's work, if you can see it as good, then maybe you can see the rest of creation as good. 
maybe you can live in a better relationship to the other things in, in creation through an, an encounter that opens your eyes. So, and I think that this is what God does with scripture for us all the time. There are these images and these truths that we come to see that then transform our whole perspective, right? And that's true of the text. That's true of this gift that God gives us in scripture, but it can also be true of the book of nature, of, of God's creations. As the heavens are declaring the glory of God. All God's creation speaks God's goodness. And so I'm thinking through and, and working through how to help people see these things, have these transformed experiences. So excellent. Joe, this has been wonderful. I've really appreciated getting to know you, your journey, everything along those lines. You know, there's even so much more that I, I really hoped we could get into regarding like uh, like yours and your wife's uh, experience with infertility and, and the, you know, the spiritual challenges that maybe you face through that. Um, you know, some of that stuff, maybe that's for a, a future podcast. Maybe we can maybe do a so. part two on this. Yeah. Uh, but because we have spent so much of your time and you've given us such rich content, uh, I've got to start to wrap this one up. So I'm going to ask you two more questions. Sure. First question is, what is a, a bit of wisdom that you've learned through the course of your journey that you would really wish to pass on and impress on uh, those listening today? Well, you mentioned how I express myself in that Alva Ross Brown biography. So Johnson is a Stone Campbell movement school. Um, the Stone Campbell movement emerged out of a desire to unify the body of Christ. And we haven't always, as a movement, done that. Um, in fact, there, there are some ways in which we've uh, done the opposite of it. But I have, from my experience early on and at Johnson and then after Johnson, I've had chances to just to meet with Christians from other backgrounds, other perspectives, and to learn from them, to listen to them. And if we're serious about the unity of the body of Christ, then we have to get to know our neighbors, uh, our, our sisters and brothers in these other traditions. Um, and there's so much we can learn from them. And sometimes I'm discouraged because uh, I, I don't see that as much as I would I would like to, but I do I do see it more and more. So I think uh, just try to meet and love your neighbors, not just Christian neighbors too. Though you know I, I spend a lot of time with snake scientists, and I have learned a ton about snakes from them. And not many of them are believers. Some of them are, but they have been so welcoming and gracious to me. They don't treat me like I'm, you know, like I don't belong. And I've experienced something like natural grace through meeting these people and learning from them in our shared love of, of these particular creatures. I see something that's almost like a um, spiritual wonder in people who have had bad experiences with Christianity or none or who, who just don't have any time for it at all. They still have wonder and love for the natural world and even something like religious or spiritual affection. And it's just been beautiful to, to be able to see that. And so I would just say, get to know your neighbors, love your neighbors. And also, I've been able to do what I've been able to do because of a lot of privilege possibilities, uh, but also because I've just been able to have wonder about things. And people have made it possible for me to extend that and have met me in it. Nobody shut me down and said, no, you can't wonder about this or think about this or ask that question. People have welcomed me 
saying God is big enough for any question that that I have, um, and all truth is God's truth, and so there's no reason why you should be afraid, because God's perfect love drives out fear, and I've been able to be with people who operate that way, and I think that I've learned from them a lot of strategies for for being able to practice that kind of presence and, and openness and wonder myself. No. It's not it's not like God is, is going to be surprised or upset or unaware of what we're wondering. Nothing we can say will offend God. Um, you know, if if nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, as Paul says in Romans eight, then we can live in a just a remarkably free, free way. Mm. Last question is this, and I'm going to give you a moment to think about it while I do a commercial. Imagine, if you will, that for the next 60 seconds, the entire world is listening to the podcast. What are you going to tell the world in your 60 seconds? While you think about your answer, let me remind our listeners that the Sojournal Podcast has been brought to you by the Alumni Association of Johnson University. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. So Joe Gordon, a member of the class of 07 here at Johnson University in Knoxville, Tennessee, but also faculty member at Johnson University, Tennessee, former faculty at Johnson University, Florida, master's PhD in theology uh, from Marquette. What, what one-minute message would you give to the world? Christians, like myself, believe that God is reconciling all things through the work of his Son on the cross and his resurrection, through the work of his Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh. And that is the mystery of God's will. Paul Paul uses these words in Ephesians 1. And it is just an incredible thing to hold this truth. And this truth opens us out on uh, considering and wondering about everything in God's world. What is excluded from all of the things that God is reconciling in Christ? And this actually is is a beautiful thing for a number of reasons. One of them is that it takes the pressure off of us. We don't have to make the world come out right because we know that God already is, is doing it. And so my question is for myself all the time, for my students, for anybody listening, how is God doing that reconciling work? In, in your context, in your presence, in your heart and mind, in your community? How is God doing that work? Find yourself in that work. Mm. Good stuff. Love it. Thank you so much, Joe, for your time today. It's been great getting to know you. Thank you for being my guest on the Sojournal Podcast. Thanks for having me, Tyson. Sojournal Podcast is a production of the Alumni Relations Office at Johnson University, edited by Tyson Chastain, music by Loyal Love, podcast graphics by Rachel Woolard. Tune in to other Sojournal Podcasts, dropping each Monday on Anchor FM, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>